Hello, everybody. I'm Max Gross, uh, editor of the Commercial Observer, and welcome to our podcast, Backstory. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Deputy Editor Tom McAtally, uh, Associate Editor Hava Garari, and our intrepid uh, Florida correspondent, uh, Julia Etchickson. Uh, welcome, everybody. Great. Um, so we have Hava and Julia on today uh, because we have a, a very special issue coming out. And I should start by saying that outside of my house, I spent this morning picking ice off of the windshield of my car. It is horrible up here in the northeast of the country. It is either frozen or slush or frozen slush or disgustingness. And all I can think about is sunny Florida and Miami Beach and all of those places. And I think that that makes this the perfect week to introduce Commercial Observer's Power South Florida list, which was primarily the effort and uh, um, thinking of Hava and Julia. So welcome to you both. Hi, good afternoon. I'm sorry that you hate the snow so much. I love the snow, but today I did not. I did not love this now. Yeah, and it's absolutely sunny down here. Truly beautiful day, mid-70s. Julia, you know, this is the last one I invite you on for a while. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so let's talk about Power South Florida. So um, this is our second year doing a power list for South Florida. Um, I was rereading it this morning, and I loved it. I thought it turned out really well. A lot of the people that we picked, I thought was it was a really good mix of people um, who all had, you know, pretty uh, distinct stories, I thought. Um, you know, we got a lot of people from retail. We got a lot of owners. We got a lot of, you know, food people, nightlife people. Um, it really was a really interesting mix. So um, I salute you both for that. Um, Hava, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about how this process started and what what, what readers can expect in this year's uh, Power South Florida list? Sure. So um, when we're looking at the South, the South Florida Power List, we're looking, you know, for people who are influential in, uh, in, in South Florida real estate, but also have something to say about the year that we've just seen. And we're either had a special highlight or we're pretty active in a certain area and sort of reflect the story of real estate in 2023 and you know a little bit into 2024. So obviously Florida is kind of a standout market from the rest of the country, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't been affected by you know the interest rates and the tight lending market. Um, and so you know trying to get a sense of who's winning in this particular uh, landscape and then also who are sort of the pillars of the industry down here and um, you know, make make the whole thing tick like it wouldn't wouldn't happen without them year after year. So it's quite a mix of, you know, people who are were specifically active this year, and then you know, again, the pillars of of the industry. Mm -hmm. Julia, um, tell us a little bit about some of the ones that you focused on yourself personally. Obviously, the list was written by a bunch of different people, but who were some of the favorites that you uh, that you wrote about? Um, I mean, I wrote about Ken Griffin, and I think he's arguably 
the new mayor of Miami. He's I like really, how you said that. Yeah, that was that was that was good in the write up. That was that was it was interesting. Hey, sorry, sorry. Especially yeah. especially since the actual mayor of Miami is not on our list this year. So, well, he has had some troubles, right, or yeah. uh, some problems with the mayor. But anyway, uh, Ken Griffin has no such problems. Yeah, so essentially, he's been so influential in Miami. So just on the real estate side, he's personally bought, I think, $200 million worth of mansions and lots for himself. So a really big buyer. But then also on the commercial side, he's planning to build a really tall office building that will function um, as a office for his own firm but he's also said that he's going to pitch that tower for other big name companies so but beyond just real estate he's really made a name for himself on the policy side so he's one of the biggest funders for the republican party and he's very loud about what he wants done so for example when Griffin, uh, when DeSantis um, was pushing a bill that would um, curtail purchases, real estate purchases by Chinese nationals, he made it known that he was not a fan of that. And I think DeSantis pretty much um, softened the bill. And then when there was a push to once again have uh, gambling come to Miami, he penned an op-ed saying that he was, again, not a fan of that bill. And now um, it's unclear whether that piece of legislation will be uh, passed in Tallahassee. So he's not only the wealthiest person in, um, in all of Florida, but he's arguably, I think, one of the most influential. Well, he's the wealthiest yeah. person now, but uh, isn't Jeff Bezos moving down there? I thought I heard that. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. But you see, I think the big difference between Jeff Bezos and Ken Griffin is that we haven't heard that much about Bezos. Like he's also spent quite a bit of money on buying homes for himself um, on um, um, Indian Creek, and he's publicly said that he's, you know, going to open an office for Amazon. But that's about it. I think mm -hmm. he's actually been quite under the radar while like Ken Griffin is really out there uh, making his own opinions known and um, making sure that the policies that he um, that he approves of are are getting passed. What's interesting also about the about the uh, well Ken Griffin's input on the casino bill was that it sort of pits uh one billionaire versus another very popular or very famous billionaire in uh in um he is a billionaire right jeffrey soper i would think so but i don't know i don't know his net worth personally it's estimated at about two billion dollars well i'll start that part over <laughs> uh, what's interesting about um ken griffin's input on the uh on the casino bill is that it pits him against another billionaire in on our list, uh, Jeffrey Sofer, who um, you know is obviously a really big name in South Florida real estate. Owned the Fountain Blue, opened the Fountain Blue in Las Vegas this year, 
and um, has been pushing for um, having a casino at the Fountain Blue in Miami Beach for a while and um, now looks like he might not be getting what he wants, but I mean, it just goes to show there's a lot of big players um, and a lot, a lot to play for in, in Miami. For sure. You know, one thing that's interesting about SOFR and one of the things that I know that we talked a little bit about in our um, preliminary meetings about the list was that, um, you know, I don't think he did anything that big in Florida this year, but um, he did open a fountain blue in Las Vegas. And, um, you know, for so long, the story of Miami had been um, people coming to Miami to, like, remake it in their image, to bring, you know, their offices or their, you know, restaurants or, you know, whatever it was uh, to Miami. And he's now um, no longer, like, he's not the importer, he's the exporter. And there have been actually a couple of those on this year's list that I thought were interesting. There was there was him, but uh, there was also um, David Grutman, uh, who I think is working with Sofer, is that right? Um, I think I think that's what Yeah, they're saying. longtime partners. They're longtime partners. And uh, David Grutman, for those who don't know, it's Groot Hospitality, which really was one of the, you know, OG... Uh, nightlife people of um, South Florida. Correct me if I sound stupid on that, Julia. Uh, but um, <laughs> um, the fact that he is actually now, you know, moving Miami out rather than, you know, stuff in, which I think is also an indication of power of some kind. Yeah, and also many of the establishments that he's bringing with him to Las Vegas haven't even bothered to change their names. Like, they're still Miami Slice in Las Vegas. So, yeah, I think he's definitely trying to export the Miami uh, the Miami Beach brand beyond just Florida. Hmm. Um, now, uh, and there was, you know, beyond just uh, Groot, um, one of the other know favorite names that's always uh, that was been on the list now two years in a row uh major food groups which uh has of course continued with um i don't know how many restaurants they've opened in miami in the last like uh, 24 months but it has been a lot um and i think that they're now starting into mexican cuisine which they had never done before like you know they were always italian there's a little bit of french but um i guess they're you know starting to reach out as well. Um, and they really are a force in, in Florida hospitality. Yeah, their signature restaurant that they brought this year was Mexican cuisine in a French chateau in uh, Miami with, um, so with the I, I don't, I'm Italian American chefs, I guess is, is what they specialized in initially. Um, but so definitely, you know, bringing everything together. But they also, I mean, their big thing was also the expanding ZZ's club, the private club in um, in the design district. Um, and apparently there's a Jap uh, Japanese sports bar in the in the back now with, uh, I mean, clearly I haven't been yet, um, but according to Jeff Zelaznik, it's awesome, but he thinks everything's awesome, so. I, I have to give Jeff credit. Um, I, I did go to ZZ's in New York. Um, and that was like, it was something like three stories to private club on 12th Avenue, three stories on a Monday night, every single table was taken. 
it was it was kind of crazy. I was a little bit shocked at how um, how a buzz it was. Although having tried to get our bone reservations over the last like six or seven years, I could sort of believe that they uh, they would be well. Good. Well, that's why they expanded the the demand in in uh, at CCs and was so high that they just they had to expand the space. So it's a power move. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly, clearly they uh, they have a they have a good they have a recipe that's working that's for sure. One of the things that I noticed with the list and and the package of stories that we have with it in this issue <clears throat> is there's still so much potential in the Miami region. You know, not to sound like a, a northern snob, but I thought the the demand and the activity would dissipate as COVID dissipated because that's what sparked so much of it was Californians and New Yorkers moving south. But our reporting shows that there's still a lot of development activity, still a lot of sales activity, and still a lot of uh, in-migration. We have a, a very good piece that takes driver's license data for the three largest counties in Southern Florida, for instance, and shows just how many new driver's licenses are being requested by former residents of California, New Jersey, and New York. And that's that's in 2024, that's not 2021, et cetera. You know. mm. Yeah, okay. it really feels like it's, 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 I think there was initially this expectation that, you know, boom, there are often boom and bust cycles, and I think Florida is known for for that. But in in this, and I think there were some skeptics or many skeptics that um, thought it would come and go. But there were many other optimists, clearly, because of the amount of plans and money and cranes in in South yeah. Florida. Obviously, there were a lot of people who believed that it was sustainable, and it seems like it's that's the further we get from the pandemic, the more we're seeing that bear out. We were just talking about Las Vegas. I had assumed that it would be Las Vegas before the last financial crisis uh, 15 years ago. That would amp up for four, three or four years and then crash. Mm. Well, well that's... Sorry, go ahead. One interesting thing to notice is that despite the fact that there were plenty of sales and we saw a whole bunch of really big construction loans toward, construction loans towards the end of the year, there actually weren't that many projects that got off the ground this year that that it was kind of a little bit of a pause year in terms of like a lot of stuff that had been planned in prior to 2023 started to go into the ground and then a lot of stuff looking ahead but there were there was this this waiting period a little bit it was only people who were sort of prepared with money in the bank could start their projects because of the lending market so there is also the fact that while there's a lot of momentum and a lot of excitement, it is being sort of spaced out in terms of the, the projects that are actually going into the ground. So we hear a lot of plans and then those actually coming to fruition, it, it's it's a little bit more spaced out, which is better for the market because it's not like a whole glut all at once. Um, and it gives people time to reset if they need to rethink what you know how to price their projects and everything like that. Yeah. And just like an, another note, um, one of the things I found really astonishing about 2023 and even 2024, so we had the debt market go into uh, a meltdown, and yet many developers here in South Florida got 
huge construction loans. Like just a few weeks ago, Mass Capital landed $600 million to build the Cipriani um, branded tower in Brickell, and that's the largest construction loan ever in South Florida. And Wickoff last year got $430 million for a project in Miami Beach. So even though, even though the rest of the country was really um, struggling because of the lack of lending, I think in South Florida, if you had the right project and if you were a known quantity like Mast, like Wickoff, and the related group and all of these other big names, you could still get your project funded, which again, I think goes to show how resilient this market was, which is quite surprising given that we're talking about South Florida, which like Havis said, is known for boom and bust, but it was also very top heavy in that. I think you had to be a high profile developer with a good track record to still get funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, we are almost out of time, but I did want to, uh, you know, throw this open for one final thought from everybody. Um, and I will start with, um, I do think that um, the, one of the things that leaped out at, at me was I really did love, uh, Julia, your line about uh, Ken Griffin becoming the mayor of Miami. That was one of my favorite parts of this list. Um, but there were um, there were there were a lot of different ones. And um, one thing that I will just say is my final like, you know, sign off on this is just um, I did think that it was a great landscape. Um, and as real estate journalists, we are interested in landscape. So, you know, we, we did try to take in the totality of it with, you know, Mike seen a story about, you know, multifamily as well. But, um, you know, uh, the condo market, there, there were some people that we talked about who did some you know, industrial deals, the, the hospitality, uh, especially condos and, you know, all the different neighborhoods that are budding up like West Palm Beach, which, you know, uh, related companies has just been so involved in. Um, so uh, my final thought is this is a, this this you should read this list because it is a wonderful snapshot of um, South Florida right now. Tom, any final words? We were talking about Mayor Suarez earlier at the, at the start. So much of the success of South Florida and of Miami in particular does not have to do with cryptocurrency. <laughs> there was a big push about two years ago, as our listeners might recall, to make it the crypto capital of North America. And that wasn't necessary. Not a single crypto trader or um, or or imprisoned crypto felon is on our list. So um, that that's good. Julia, any final words? Um. Well, I mean, it still goes to show that like Miami and South Florida are still still just a very big hype machine, and that it still can't quite um, get rid of all of its boom and bust um, tendencies, you know, when it went all big on crypto and um, that hasn't really worked out for the best. And even the big Bitcoin conference moved to Nashville last year. They said goodbye to Miami. So 
Um, I would say there are still some growing pains, but I think the region overall has truly made great strides and over the past year. And hopefully it won't, you know, we won't eat our words and maybe next year it'll, there, there will be the start of the crash. Because, I mean, no. there's still a lot no, of like... No, <laughs> no, 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 no eating of words, no crash, but hopefully not. Sorry. Didn't I mean, some right. people say so, but <laughs> we'll see. Um, yeah, I don't know. You can cut that part out or what I said. <laughs> I mean, to me, the big story is just how resilient the market has been, that you can still get a lot of stuff done here. Um, and the climate is still really hospitable to um, to developers. You know, it's pretty easy to get a project approved and to get it funded. And that's um, in big contrast to California, New York, where developers are really demonized and have kind of stopped building in the same um, in the same speed as before. Mm. Ava, you get the last word. All right. Well, um, I did want to say one thing talking of growing pains, I guess, is the the positive side of that is that the people who are active now can really have an effect on what happens next for South Florida. And I think on the policy side, there's a lot of really important issues that are going on, um, you know, from the Live Local Act, which was passed last year and is currently being amended in the uh, legislature and um, is really there to try to, you know, help with the affordable, the affordable housing crisis. And for many people, they believe it's a win-win. Um, it's, it's meant to spur more development with uh, incentives for developers, but also to help you know, the people living there. So there's there's that. Um, and then currently, just because I also wrote a story about uh, the child labor legislation that's work, working its way through the legislature as well, which is uh, a couple of different bills looking at, you know, easing regulations for uh, teenagers, um, some of which would, would uh, make it easier for them to work on construction sites. Um, and which, I mean, there are opponent, there are definitely opponents and proponents. Um, but I think the, the main issue here is that the people in the real estate industry have a lot of power and a lot of influence and a lot of weight, and they can, uh, influence where South Florida and where Florida goes next. Um, and so paying attention to these larger issues, uh, how it affects the real estate, real estate industry, but also just how it affects the city and how it affects the people living there, I think is um, an important aspect of power um, as well. Hmm. And for this, for your, we did have a live local entry for power. Like you spoke to Vicky Lopez and um, Alexis uh, Calitude. Is I'm not sure I'm saying her name correctly, but Calitude. Um, I, I spoke to 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 the representative Vicky Lopez, um, but we honored. But both of them are on the list because they're they were the two sponsors of the Live Local Act. Um, I actually don't know how to pronounce her name either, so I'm not going to try to. But good thing they didn't speak to her. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I spoke to them both, and um, uh, representative. Uh, well, Vicky Lopez represents uh, parts of uh, Miami Dade or uh, parts of Miami, so. Um, yeah, she had a lot to say on the importance of uh, building affordable housing and also making the city, you know, affordable for um, for the locals who were there before uh, before uh, the COVID migration. So, right. 
on that note, let us let us conclude this uh, uh, broadcast of uh, uh, Backstory. Uh, for Commercial Observer, I'm Max Gross. I'm joined by Tom Acatelli, Julia Etchickson, and Ava Garari. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.